It's Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. If you're like me, then you often dream about gallivanting across the cosmos at warp speed, or masking your presence at an awkward social gathering with a personal cloaking device. Warp drive and cloaking technology are two of the coolest bits of tech in the Star Trek universe. But how might these fantastic technologies work in reality? Well, you're in luck, because I asked those very questions to Dr. Aaron McDonald at this year's Star Trek Las Vegas convention. Aaron is an accomplished scientist, science consultant, and science communicator. Chances are, if you've been to a con within the past few years, you've seen her give one of her numerous science of science fiction talks. This year at STLV, she was a part of five different talks and panels. That's probably more than anyone else at this single convention. And I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down with her right after her Science of Star Trek Discovery talk, which she did as a brilliant tag team with our Strange New Worlds guest from Episode 72, Professor Mohammed Noor. Together, Aaron and I geeked out about the physics of Star Trek. But before we get to that, Star Trek Las Vegas is a thrill of a weekend because you never know who you're going to bump into in the ginormous convention center. Actors, writers, artists, they're all swimming around, signing autographs, taking photos, selling merch, and just having a blast chatting with fans. As it turns out, I was speaking to some of my friends over at Star Trek Online when they asked if I'd like to have a chat with Rekha Sharma. Rekha Sharma, who's best known to the Star Trek fandom at least as the woman behind Commander Landry from Star Trek Discovery. The online folks were recording an interview with her because she'd lent her voice as Ellen Landry for the Rise of Discovery expansion. Well, how could I say no? So to tee us up for Dr. Aaron McDonald, here's the wonderful Rekha Sharma, straight from the STLV convention floor. Well, Rekha, uh, welcome to Strange New Worlds, um, and thank you for all of the talent and hard work that you put into your character on Star Trek Discovery. Um, thank you. Yeah. I was just wondering if we could chat a little bit about your experience working on Star Trek and how you decided to bring the certain uh, kind of air that your character had and how you described that and, and what her motives and objectives were, I guess both for the regular universe version of your character and the mirror universe version as well. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we started with, with Prime, Prime Landry. Um, you know, it was a, 
kind of an intense way to start a story with, with you know, the Battle of the Binary Stars. And, and of course, uh, Burnham is wholeheartedly responsible, as far as we're all concerned, for the, uh, the death of however many people. I, always, I, I thought of it in terms of, basically, she was responsible for killing everybody we all loved. <laughs> Um, and the fact that our lives are now in danger, everything we're doing is her fault, mm-hmm. and she comes onto the ship. And so that's the first time you meet Landry. Yeah. Is she is looking at the person that she holds entirely responsible for all of the entire disaster. It's like, you know, it, how most of us would feel probably if we talked to Trump times a thousand, mm-hmm. right? Right. You want to kill him. <laughs> Um, so that was the kind of intensity that I needed to bring to that very first moment of the introduction to, to Landry. Because right. that's what she's dealing with. Someone that she absolutely despises. And I think that comes know? through so well. I was actually on my plane ride here. Yeah. I was re-watching the first couple of episodes of Discovery. And that first moment in the shuttle bay where Landry comes out and she's like, Oh, looks like we're unloading all sorts of garbage today. Yep. I, I see that now. So... I guess it didn't really register before that she had, you know, gone through the entire war and holds one person responsible for all of the death and destruction, and that is centered on Michael Burnham. Yeah, I mean, that was what we were trying to sort of communicate in that first episode with, like, people looking at her sideways as she's walking down. She's a criminal, but she's not just any criminal. She is the criminal that we've all been told is responsible for what's happening right now. And, and that was a really intense thing. And it you know, makes you, of course, empathize with her character more because the audience knows that it's not really her fault. Right. And then, so Landry has this very interesting relationship with Lorca, um, who I suppose she doesn't suspect is from the Mirror Universe. Yep. But, but None of Lor- us do. Right. Uh, <laughs> and Lorca has this war room where he's essentially studying yeah. the different kinds of evil crazy weaponry that he's finding in all sorts of places. Uh, what is uh, Commander Landry's role in terms of being Lorca's, I suppose, right-hand person in right. terms of that war effort, studying all of this? Right. Well, I think now, you know, now that we know um, from the online game what happened to Landry before she got to Discovery when they were on the Baran together, and all the hardships that they faced there. We know that, you know, not only is she upset about what's happening right now, she has a history that fuels her with a great deal of, of rage, mm-hmm. and rightly so. And um, where was Marina Sirtis? <laughs> you know, where was <laughs> Counselor Troy? Yeah, exactly. You know, because Landry could have really used Counselor Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, before, before her time, Unfortunately, so all of her rage was basically being focused upon her her duty as the tactical officer, security officer. Tactical officer, security officer, and she also, you know, what she went through with Lorca, the bond that she had with him. I mean, he saved her life on the Baran, and so she felt an incredible sense of duty to him. And that was, you know, that's her Starfleet training. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, my captain, my captain. You yeah. know, I will do whatever you say. And. But the twisted part is that she's, he's really got her wrapped around his little finger because he's sleeping with her, too. Oh, okay. And it wasn't talked about explicitly right. in Discovery, but it was there. And, 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 and there, were, there were enough people who picked up on it. 
um, there was a scene where we would have seen it more explicitly, but I guess they backed out of that because, you know, it's Star oh, Trek okay. and you don't want to get too racy, uh -huh. but, um, but yeah, so he was sleeping with her, you know, it was absolutely a hashtag me too relationship. Uh, manipulating her. I wish that was explored a little bit more. I wish so too, because okay. it, you know, it, it left some things sort of unanswered. But that was part of it. But it, it was also enough to just go, okay, she is under the pin of somebody who's really different. And then to later on find out that he's part of the mirror universe, you know, hopefully that shed some more light on why she um, did choices that she made, because she's influenced by somebody from the mirror. Yeah. You know, and he's unlike any other captain we've ever experienced. But you don't know that when you're starting the show. You know, it doesn't become revealed until later. So, so yeah, you do go, why is she doing that? You know, it doesn't all make sense until it makes sense. And can we talk about the decision that she makes with regards to the tardigrade and trying to understand it as a weapon? Yeah. Star Trek is generally about exploring strange new worlds and understanding new life and making peaceful contact with that. So what was going through Landry's mind and what was going through her heart when she decided, let's just lower this force field and brute force our way through this problem? Again, it's the influence of Lorca, the fact that he was from the Mirror Universe and that he was, you know, all about revenge, we've got to get those Klingons, we're going to do whatever it takes, you know, they're intense warriors, and at that time, we also don't know, like we do later in, in, in TNG, that we can actually all live in harmony. This is before that. Yeah. This is, in, and, and, and it's an important story to talk about, that, you know, that we believe that in our own planet right now, we believe that there are enemies. And that's what I love about Star Trek. Star Trek says, and, and Battlestar Galactica also said, no, we're not. Mm -hmm. It's an idea you have in your head. And we even have that in our interpersonal relationships with our loved ones. We think they're against us. And we think we have to be against them. You know, we see that all the time in, in, in marriages and in relationships with, uh, you know, your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad. Wait a second. We can all be on the same team and look at a problem as a team, as Starfleet. Right. Not think that we're have to be pitted against each other. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And um, just one last question, going to the mirror universe now. Mm -hmm. I feel like your mirror universe counterpart was very similar in terms of loyalty and yes, Captain. So for you, what was the main difference, the, the, the most salient difference between the prime version of Landry and the mirror universe the version of Landry? To me, the, the, the main difference was that mirror Landry was actually a freedom fighter. Mm -hmm. She was living in an oppressed society under the pin of Giorgio and actually fighting for freedom. All right. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank this you. This was a real pleasure. I look forward to encountering your character on Star Trek Online. Thank and, you. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Yes, absolutely. I think it's pretty fun. Okay. <laughs> well, that was simply a blast. You can follow Rekha Sharma on Twitter at Sharma. And even though her character died twice in Star Trek, you can encounter her alive and well in Star Trek Online, a free-to-play, massively multiplayer online role-playing game, or MMORPG, or more. That's definitely a Klingon word. Anyway, I've played STL ever since its launch in 2010. In fact, I think I was one of its beta testers. Although I don't really remember. It was quite a long time ago. Anyway, 
Although I don't play it quite as heavily anymore, I've been known to log into Star Trek Online every once in a while, so if you see a liberated Borg wandering around New Romulus with the name M of W, that's me. Alright, now to our main feature from STLV, an interview with Dr. Erin McDonald. Erin received her PhD from the University of Glasgow, working in the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO for short, collaboration. She'll describe what those fancy words mean in just a bit, but I want to mention that since graduating, she has found her home in science fiction, consulting with writers, teaching science, technology, engineering, and math through popular culture, and fulfilling her life goal of becoming a real-life warp drive expert. Dr. Erin McDonald, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Yeah. Um, so I thought we would do a lightning round first. <laughs> okay. So I've got five questions and just off the top of your head. Okay. Favorite captain? Oh, Janeway. Favorite series? Deep Space Nine. Ooh. I know. Favorite <laughs> episode? Oh, gosh. Counterpoint. Counterpoint Voyager. Voyager. Yep. Yeah. Yep, that's a great one. <laughs> Favorite uniform? Ooh, that's really good. I think I have to go with, off the top of my head, I mean Voyager. I own the Voyager jumpsuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and would you be command? Command. command. Yeah. Okay. And last but not least, favorite device or technology from Star Trek? Oh, that's a really good one. I would say, off the top of my head, cloaking device. Ooh, very but nice. I put zero thought into that. So, <laughs> well, we'll put some more thought into cloaking okay. devices in a bit because okay. I have a science question for you about awesome. that. So, Aaron, what role has Star Trek played in your life, both scientific and otherwise? Yeah, I didn't really get into Star Trek until I was in college. I sort of was peripherally aware of it, you know, catching it on TV occasionally. But um, once I got into college and I started studying physics, there's an unsurprisingly big intersection between physicists and Star Trek fans. And so I would catch a lot of Star Trek. I had a lot of friends who were really into it. And so that's kind of how I started watching it, um, was actually very much a social aspect. And then as I my passion for it grew, um, the 2009 reboot film came out, right, like actually the night we all graduated. So that was kind of a big momentous moment for all of us. And then when I went off to grad school, I moved by myself um, to a new country. I moved to Scotland. And so that was where I really dove into Star Trek. And for me, that was where it became like part of my family, part of my inspiration. And that was a big part of my life. So that's kind of where it all grew. And then I started getting really into like how to use Star Trek to teach science because I was doing my PhD in general relativity, specifically gravitational waves. But as I was procrastinating my thesis, I was thinking, you know, I can probably calculate warp drive now. <laughs> like, nice. this is what I do. And so I stopped kind of working on my actual thesis and figured out how warp drive would work and then started coming to conventions to speak about it. So it's really, Star Trek has been a huge part of my life pretty much from college on. All right, so let's dive into your thesis mm -hmm. research. You mentioned that you did your doctorate studying gravitational waves mm -hmm. and contributed to LIGO, which was a project that has now detected gravitational waves yep. from merging black holes and merging neutron stars and won the Nobel Prize in physics very recently. So could you describe for our listeners what 
a gravitational wave is and yeah. what LIGO does? Well, to clarify, I did leave the collaboration less than a year before they made their Nobel Prize winning detection. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, I like to say I loosened the jarlid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but gravitational waves are really just this idea that, you know, Einstein came up with this concept using space time and introducing mass to show how another way of thinking how gravity works. So some of you may have seen like that bowling ball on a trampoline image where, you know, you put the bowling ball on a trampoline and it dips down and you can flick a marble and that will orbit the bowling ball just like our moon orbits a planet or the planets orbit the star. And that has worked. And one of the things that Einstein theorized was like, well, what if like there are changes to those objects, if they're not perfectly round or things collide or things explode, what would happen? And so through the math, you actually end up getting a wave equation that travels at the speed of light. So space-time itself ripples when something changes. And so he theorized that, but figured they're there, but they're so small, no one will ever detect them. So I'm emitting gravitational waves right now by waving my arms? You are, but That's they're awesome. very, very tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny, tiny waves. But yeah, any asymmetry that we make is going to emit some sort of ripple in space-time. Um, but he said no matter what, they're so small, no one will detect them. And around sort of the 70s and 80s, even slightly before that, actually, there was a guy named Joseph Weber who developed this idea of building a resonance bar. So resonance is this idea, you know, if you run your finger on a wine glass, you know, you hit its resonance frequency and it starts to ring. Or if you've seen like the Tacoma Bridge disaster, why you break step when you're walking across a bridge is because of that resonant frequency. He thought you could build a big metal bar that when it was hit with a gravitational wave, it would amplify it. It would start to resonate. And that was really hard to do because the science is sound, but it has to be very particular gravitational wave to detect that. And then in the 90s, they started building something called LIGO, which is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And what it is, is it's like the Michelson-Morley experiment, if people have heard of that. So with LIGO, you send a laser beam in, it gets split in two directions at 90 degrees, so like an L-shape travels about four kilometers in each direction, hits a mirror, comes back, and the light gets recombined. And if gravitational wave passes by, one arm will get shorter, one arm gets longer, and now you have an interference pattern. And so that was kind of what the concept behind that was, and they actually discovered that it was a great way to be able to detect gravitational waves, but they are so small, you would only detect the most intense gravitational waves, so ones from colliding neutron stars or black holes, and uh, like you said, since then, around in 2015, they upgraded. LIGO had been taken offline in 2010 and upgraded, and it improved the noise by about a factor of 10, which means we could see a thousand times the volume in space. And actually, within a day of turning both detectors on, they got a black hole collision came right through. And like you said, that's what they won the Nobel Prize for. I actually had the chance to visit the LIGO Observatory in uh, eastern Washington. Oh, recently. awesome. Nice. And it just really impressed me how large these tunnels were that the laser beams were bouncing back and forth between. And I guess you need something that large to observe something super small. Yeah. Um, and, and that was just such a, a visceral experience for me. Just like, wow, we actually yeah. built this, I guess... It was almost like a giant monument to science at yeah. the same time as being a really awesome science experiment. Absolutely. Yeah, they had to. It's just it's amazing because these detectors are four kilometers long and the changes that they're detecting 
um, from, like I said, that one arm getting longer, one arm getting shorter, are actually one one thousandth the size of an atom. So it's un it's tiny gravitational waves, but we detected them. And yeah. Yep. It's awesome. And the engineers there were telling me stories about how even like mice running around or crows yeah. landing on the observatory or a tumbleweed bouncing yep. around will just mess up the signal. Yeah. Or it was too windy. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, so the bending of space-time, as you've described, is highly related to the science fiction concept of the warp drive. Yes. And so I was wondering if you could describe your understanding of how the warp drive works in Star Trek. Absolutely. So it's this idea that we can't go faster than the speed of light because of space-time, because we have mass. And the less mass you have, the less you dip space-time. Eventually you get to the point where you have no mass, and space-time is flat, right? There's no mass. That trampoline is totally flat. You coast along the surface in a straight line. That's what light is. That's the speed of light. And so that's why we can't go faster than that, because as soon as you have mass, you slow down, and you can't go faster than that. But nothing in physics says that space-time itself can't go faster than the speed of light. So warp drive is this idea that you could bend space-time around your ship, and then that would propel it. You know, then space-time itself would push the ship forward while the ship itself is in normal space. And then if you want to go even faster, you would build a bubble around that bubble and exponentially increase your speed. And that's our warp factor one, warp factor two, you know? That's awesome. <laughs> so it's great. And because it's exponential, eventually you're going to get to the point where you wrap all of space and time around your ship. And that's kind of what happens at warp factor 10, which results in terrible episodes that we don't talk about. <laughs> yeah, you turn into so, lizards yeah. or something exactly. like that? Exactly. Yeah. So, so so we've seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I also give science of Star Trek talks, and generally the way the analogy that I use is like uh, if you expand space time behind you and contract it in front of you, you're sort of creating a tidal wave of space time that yeah. you can sort of surf faster than the speed of light. Yeah. Is that accurate? That's a great way of thinking about okay. it too. Yeah, absolutely. I like your bubbles though, because that mm-hmm. ties into the techno babble that they talk about, the warp bubbles. Right. And so you create layers and layers of bubbles and you go faster and faster. But the way you're talking about kind of helps conceptualize um, that two-dimensional, because when we break it down to a trampoline, a lot of people sometimes have a problem with that because they're like, well, but space is three-dimensional, so what's above the trampoline, you know? And mm. one, if people are having a hard time with that one that I like to use is think about mattress springs and that you stick your hand into mattress springs and squeeze your hand and make a fist they're all going to stretch toward your hand and you can kind of picture that like that's what's happening when there's a presence of a mass that's your fist and space time is stretching toward your fist but that's what gets hard then when you're talking you know it's (laughs) it's a hard analogy but it helps for some people no I think that's great I've never thought about using that analogy before and I think I will (laughs) good so um, the bending of space-time also underpins how cloaking devices work, at least to my knowledge. And um, basically for a cloaking device, well, the reason why we see anything is because light bounces off of an object and then comes into our eyes. The way I understand a cloaking device is that uh, a ship is bending space-time around it so that light never actually bounces off the object, the physical object. It just goes around. I like that, um, yeah. And, and in Star Trek Discovery, we actually see this principle used to detect a cloaked vessel. So yeah. I was wondering if you could explain that scene in the real science yeah. behind it. I like the way that you described the cloaking device as a way to bend light around. And I know some scientists have tried to figure that out, a way that you could bend light around an object so you don't see it. Um, but regardless, it's still going to have a gravitational presence. And so you could, as light passes by something, it's going to get slightly curved because of the gravitational wave it, or the gravitational well. Because it's like thinking when you have the bowling ball on the trampoline, if you flick a marble, it's going to get curved off in one direction. 
And so what they did in discovery is they decided, we call that gravitational lensing when light gets curved around a gravitational object. And um, in discovery, what they used is they said, basically, if there's a cloaked ship, then the background stars are going to be slightly, slightly curved. Kind of like what you were talking about with waving your arms, you're emitting gravitational waves. The gravitational lensing with just a single ship is going to be very tiny, but that's why they did so many jumps. And they actually call it like microgravitational lensing and take all of these images. And if you have enough data, you can detect that. So mm -hmm. yeah, I love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I really geeked out about that scene too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you opened your physics of Star Trek talk with that poker scene from TNG between <laughs> Newton, Einstein, Hawking, and Lieutenant Commander Data. Yep. And so I was wondering, how do you go about crafting your science of Star Trek talks? How do you pick the specific episodes or topics that you want to talk about to create the brilliant narratives <laughs> that you share with us at Thank Star you. Trek conventions? Um, a lot of it comes from, I'll have an idea or, I'll, you know, as a sci-fi fan, I'm watching a lot of it. And so if I see an episode that really stands out for me as a good way of explaining something, then I'll kind of take that concept and go from there. You know, we see a, a handful of these. I think, you know, the idea for talking about tachyons for me came when uh, I was watching the series finale of Voyager, and they talk about the presence of Admiral Janeway as she's coming through the wormhole. There's a huge surge of tachyons, and so I talk about how because tachyons travel faster than the speed of light, those are good indicators of time travel. And so then I ended up, doing a whole time travel thing and then adding in my my tachyons. But the other thing too just comes from talking to people. You know, I'm on Twitter. And so when I get these ideas and I go to some conventions, sometimes people will ask questions and they'll say, well, what about photon torpedoes? And then I'm like, all right, well, I'll talk about photon torpedoes. And so every year I try to introduce a new talk. And then every time if I'm giving a repeat of a talk, I go through it and think about the questions that were asked the last time I gave it and figure out if there are ways to incorporate those. Because if people are asking the question, they're probably not the only one that's wanting to know that information. So yeah, it's a, it's definitely a never-ending learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that poker game uh, between Newton, Einstein, Hawking, and Data, um, they're all men there. There's not <laughs> a lot of female representation on there. So yeah. if you could pick a female scientist, um, mm -hmm. either present or from the past, to join that poker game, who would that be? Ooh, my mind went to Vera Rubin. Mm -hmm. um, she was uh, one of the first people to kind of find the indication of dark matter. Um, Vera Rubin actually measured uh, the velocity of stars that were going around in the Milky Way galaxy and found that there must be more matter there than, than we had previously seen. Another great female scientist from my field is Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who was the first person to detect pulsars. Um, so these are basically dead stars that are emitting radiation like a lighthouse. And so um, I think both of them have not got the credit that they have deserved. And there are so many, you know, the term hidden figures of women who, you know, famously Jocelyn Bell Burnell, she made the discovery, she figured out what was going on, and she did not win the Nobel Prize. Her male counterparts won it, and she did not. So, yeah, that's a history wrong that needs to be righted. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think we're on the trajectory. We're getting there. there. We're yeah, getting for there. sure. Yeah. And so you work now as a science fiction consultant. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how that even works. In my <laughs> mind, I imagine that you are in the writer's room and a writer turns to you and is like, how do I write this up <laughs> into, a, into a script that makes sense yeah. scientifically? Um, 
Yeah, how does that work? Sometimes it is that actually, where it is like writers just say, we have a concept, you have to help us make it work. Or like, we have come up with a narrative that we've kind of backed ourselves into a corner because we haven't thought through the science and now there's like a big reveal and we know it'll pull the audience out if it's like scientifically bonkers, you know? So we have to come up with a way of explaining it. Um, other times it's getting scripts or getting actual, you know, drafts of a book or a story. And I line edit it for science, you know, to just say, is the way they're talking about science right? And at that level, it's not really changing the concepts. It's just making sure the way they're talking about it makes sense. So, you know, when they're talking about particles or like light, especially as a wave or a particle, are they using those terms correctly? And sometimes it's even coaching actors. I helped out with Orbital Redux, which was a live streamed sci-fi show. And uh, Yasmin Albutani was one of the main characters and she had to live scribble an equation on the set um, to solve a problem, but she had to do it live and it was live streamed. And so I helped her learn that equation, explain what it meant, how to say it, you know, because if you're not from the sciences, saying things like, Y equals, you know, one half X dot, you know, the, mm -hmm. all those terms is not intuitive to people of how to say it. So, um, so yeah, really help with the whole process and it's awesome. It's really fun. That is Dream amazing. Job. Yeah. Yeah. Have you consulted on anything that we've seen in Star Trek? Um, no. So, uh, Orbital Redux is the one that I've definitely done the most with. And then the stuff I do with Star Trek is mostly after the fact, you know? So it's, <laughs> it's explaining what did come out to the fans. All yeah. right. So in that case, is there an aspect of science or a scientific principle that we haven't yet seen or explored in Star Trek that you would want them to explore? Yeah, um, time dilation. Um, so they do gravitational time dilation. They talk about slingshotting. They talk about, you know, the episode Blink of an Eye in Voyager. They talk about how time is going faster because of actually tachyon. Uh, center of a planet. Um, but they've never really talked about this idea that if you're going close to the speed of light, you know, this is Einstein's twin paradox, that if a twin travels to a planet close to the speed of light and comes back, his twin and him are going to be the different ages because of time dilation. And that's never really been explored that much. And I'd love to see that. I think there's a lot of storytelling to be done there. Well, hopefully you get a call from the writers and yep. uh, are able to work that into the script. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and my very last question is, if you could play a role in an upcoming Star Trek series, what would it be and why? This is an easy one. And I actually didn't come up with it, but I'm totally on board with it. I was on another uh, live stream podcast and someone said, I remind them of what they think Tilly's stepsister is like. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And from there, I was like... Oh, that's happening. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that's great. Well, I hope yeah. you get that call too. Right. Obviously, a young Captain Janeway would be mm. beyond ideal. They're doing prequels. She was a science officer. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, Tilly's stepsister, I really like. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. All right. And you have a YouTube series of your own. Yep. Um, do you want to tell the audience what that is and yep. where they can find it? Yeah, it's called Dr. Aaron Explains the Universe. It's on YouTube. And uh, if you just search for that, it's kind of short 
short versions of the talks that I give at conventions. Um, right now, there aren't any new episodes coming out, but there's a lot of content on there now, and then there might be some coming in the future. And then you can always find me as well on Twitter. It's at Dr. Aaron Mack, Dr. Aaron Mack. Um, that's where I answer a lot of science questions, and I mostly tweet about science and science fiction. <laughs> that is really wonderful. Well, thank you for explaining part of the universe to me today. Thank and you. It was a real pleasure talking to you at Star Trek Las Vegas. Yeah, thank you. Likewise. And that's my interview with Dr. Aaron McDonald the queen of gravity herself. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate and review Strange New Worlds wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in next time as Elise Cutts rejoins the show to discuss Dr. Una McCormick's Star Trek Discovery novel, The Way to the Stars. Until then, See you out there.